Human rights are women's rights. Change the world. <laughs> Global Dispatches. This is your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. There's a refugee crisis in the United States. Since October, over 50,000 unaccompanied minors have crossed the southern border of the United States. Now, this is in addition to tens of thousands of families as well who are escaping violence and persecution of various kinds. Uh, the situation is only getting worse in terms of numbers of people and the pace of people flowing and fleeing violence in Central America. So I wanted to get a sense of who are these migrants? Who are these un- unaccompanied minors? Why are they leaving? Under what circumstances are they coming to the United States? And once they arrive here, what happens to them? So I reached out to Save the Children. Now, for those of us who follow global humanitarian issues pretty closely, you know, we know that Save the Children is one of those big relief organizations that has operations on the ground in places like South Sudan and, and Syria. We're not used to thinking of relief operations happening in the United States, but in fact, this is a crisis. So a humanitarian group like Save the Children is among one of many that are responding to this crisis. So I caught up with Gary Shea of Save the Children, who had just returned from a trip to Texas on the uh, Texas-Mexico border, where he visited with migrants, with families, to get a sense of what is propelling them across the border, what is compelling them to come to the United States, and what's their journey like. This was an interesting conversation, also, frankly, an unusual one. I'm used to speaking with people from organizations like Save the Children. Uh, In fact, I spoke with the CEO of Save the Children for the relaunch of this podcast a few weeks ago. uh, And she, Ms. Caroline Miles, told me her fascinating story, her fascinating life story, about how she came to lead one of the world's largest international humanitarian relief organizations, uh, which, again, makes this particular conversation about a relief operation happening here in the United States, somewhat uh, unusual. So have a listen. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. Send me your thoughts and feedback via markleongoldberg.com or at Mark L. Goldberg on Twitter. Here it is, my conversation with Gary Shea of Save the Children. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Uh, the situation in the border of the U.S. is something that's been developing and increasing in terms of number of people uh, coming toward the U.S. border, I would say, within the last year. And it's scheduled to increase, you know, expected to increase again this year to larger numbers of people trying to enter the U.S. In terms of where the people come from, they come primarily from El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala, and and Mexico, although most Mexicans, I believe, are turned back at the border because there's a separate provisions for Mexicans. So they come from Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala, and most of the people are coming 
for the following reasons. Violence in their communities, uh, death threats, uh, lawlessness, gang violence, uh, fear of reprisals by gangs, and conditions that make people want to leave and find a better life for their children. So these are, I mean, I think most of my readers are sort of aware globally that, you know, of refugee crises, but, you know, these sounds like almost typical reasons that a refugee would flee a, you know, would would flee their home country for safer grounds, Um, which is kind of surprising when you think about that we're talking about sort of the U.S. border. Right. I think the situations, just as you said, the situations that people are fleeing from, and I will tell you a few uh, stories because I think they exemplify what we heard. I was in McAllen, Texas, uh, at a location that Save the Children is working at together with Catholic Charities, where we provide protection services to children and their mothers who are going on to meet a relative in the U.S. So currently we are focused on children who've been cleared by the border authorities and immigration, have tickets to go on to the States. So last Thursday morning, uh, I met with four or five uh, women uh, together with our, our CEO, Carolyn Miles, who was also there for a visit. And one story was a woman from El Salvador who was fleeing with a four-year-old child to go meet a relative in Alabama. And her story was as follows. Her brother-in-law witnessed a crime on the streets where one person was killed and another person was injured. Her brother-in-law was a good Samaritan and provided assistance to the person who was injured to get to a medical facility. When gang members heard about this and heard who did it, he was killed. Immediately, uh, her husband fled to the States because there were threats against him. So some months ago, the husband fled to the States, uh, got to the States, uh, is in Alabama. And recently, the gang members who knew where the mother lived or, you know, his wife lived, came to the house and said, your husband better come back or we're going to harm or kill your your child. At that point, she called her husband. And he said, please try to get up here. I don't want anything to happen. Obviously, I'm not coming back because, you know, I'll be killed just like my brother. And she got on buses and traveled up to the border, uh, was cleared by the immigration uh, authorities because she had a person to go to. And those type of stories were quite common. I met another 19-year-old so young mother. she didn't mother. cross illegally. I mean, she, she went through a regular border crossing, was granted well, I guess, she, a visa. Here's, here's what happened to most of the women. Again, we were working in facilities where everyone who came in who was getting services, and not, you know, whether it was shelter, food, some legal advice, and our protection services, had already been through, uh, you know, they probably traveled, you know, as they could through, through Central America and Mexico. They got to the border and probably, you know, I'm not an expert on immigration issues, but they were cleared for onward passage to the U.S. And they were also given papers to present themselves at a court to see if they could remain in the States or not. And most people had a date of three to four weeks after they arrived in the States. Once they entered the States through, you know, some of the services of Catholic Charities and other, you know, groups working there, 
family members who were living in the states or sponsors were contacted. Those people would make arrangements to purchase a bus ticket, which was then given to that person uh, at the center that we're working at together with Catholic Charities. They would get some food items if they had to spend a night or two to make sure everything was in order. Uh, they would have a shelter to stay in. They would get medical attention because a lot of these people came out of like detention facilities that generally from the small sample that I spoke with might be three to six or seven days where they were detained until their cases could be studied. Now, in this case, the people we're currently working with are all uh, accompanied by an adult, a parent or a relative. They are not the unaccompanied children, which is still a very large population that we're still trying to reach. So I, I'd like to speak a bit about the, the unaccompanied children, because um, surely, you know, in, in your um, work in this area, you've, you've at least come across these um, stories. Where where do these children come from? Is it the same, is it same place? Or is it the same reason that, that this, this woman, this mother you just described was fleeing? Um, and what, what does their journey look like? All right. Again, because we didn't speak directly with any of the unaccompanied children, what I will tell you was related by some of the mothers who were on buses with some of these children. Uh, in some cases, uh, some of the young girls were being recruited for trafficking. Uh, and it's, and obviously didn't want to get involved in that, so they fled. Others were being recruited by gang members. You either join or harm will come your way. And that was both boys and girls. There was such violence in the countries, both in rural and urban areas, because I always asked if I asked the people I was speaking with, is the violence just in the urban areas? And they say no. Uh, the drug trafficking is prevalent uh, throughout the entire region. So these people felt that they could no longer go to school, continue a normal life without being at risk for their life, their safety, their health. Uh, family members may have paid you know, amounts to help these people travel up to the border uh, where you know, many of them are detained or some probably will be deported. And again, since I, we were unable to visit any of these border control sites or some of the HHS sites, uh, we didn't have the firsthand knowledge, although you know we've seen stories in the newspaper and what the women recounted was a similar story, uh, fleeing violence, extortion, death threats, and having had other family members killed or injured or harmed, uh, Family members, in a sense, exported their children to try to have them reach someone who their family knew in the States where they had contacts and others probably trying to get to the States for personal safety, just as you said before, as people would flee a conflict area, whether it's inside Syria, Central African Republic, South Sudan, people will come to a, a safe, safe harbor so they can be protected. And our focus you know, as Save the Children, our focus is on children's humanitarian needs. And while lots of discussions will continue about immigration, who should get admitted or not, we zero in on the needs of children as 
you know, any of the staff will work for, say, the children. What we would do for family members who would be in a similar circumstance, we would want them protected. So that's our always our area of focus. So, you know, Save the Children is obviously a very well-known international relief organization. Uh, you know, you have huge operations in South Sudan and Central African Republic and Syria. I mean, how similar or dissimilar is your operation on the ground in the on the Mexican border to those in, you know, the places I just mentioned? I think what is similar are the needs of children and in terms of the trauma and hardship they've experienced in a journey, whether you're talking about the lost boys of Sudan who wandered for years from South Sudan into Ethiopia and waited for years in camps, experienced tremendous hardship along the way. That part is somewhat similar to what the people we spoke with. Uh, again, at the moment, uh, once people reach a border facility, uh, whether they're admitted to go to the States or not, I think some of the safety issues go away. You know, they're no longer on that journey. Now, we don't know yet about all the children who are in the border control facilities, the HHS facilities. If they are sent back to their country, how will they be sent back? How do we safeguard their well-being? Uh, and what is it going to be like when they do go back? We don't know that yet. And, uh, you know, again, when people get to the States, they have a sponsor. They generally have a family member. Every person I spoke to had a family member who had been in the States that they were going to be received by. And I don't think people get released, um, you know, by the immigration authorities until they can prove that or go through some analysis again. We are not involved in who comes in, who gets returned. Um, I think one of the differences would be once people, their personal safety, unlike some of the real tragic situations where conflicts are going on, is probably a bit better once they're in a U.S. border facility. I, I would say it's generally a lot better. But the facilities are very overcrowded. And I would say authorities have been overwhelmed by the numbers of people. I mean, we had women who told us they had to sleep on the floor. Yeah, can you describe, hit. like, what these facilities, what these HHS facilities are like? I haven't been in any of those facilities, but I can tell you what the women who spoke with us said. Mm -hmm. uh, it was very uncertain about how long they would be there, and that uncertainty uh, is probably due to the fact that all these services are taxed beyond capacity with the numbers of people who are coming in. While they were fed, the food wasn't always something they were used to, uh, but they had food. Bathroom facilities were crowded. And some of the children, again, we don't know if this is from the journey they had, uh, had lice, had scabies, and some were scared from the journey and weren't eating as normally as they did once they got into you know, the food that was, the food at the Catholic Charities uh, site we're working at was being provided by the Salvation Army. So people were getting, I would say, food that they were more accustomed to. Mm -hmm. uh, so they, they described it as overcrowded. And the hardest thing was the uncertainty of not knowing where they were going. Some of the people came out and said they didn't know if they were going to be going back on a bus back to their homes or they were going to be going to meet a family or sponsor in the U.S. So I think the uncertainty was a big issue. And I want to be fair to the border authorities. We know sometimes from our work around the world when you have – systems 
systems and resources that are overtaxed. I spent two years working in Haiti. And the situation there, the number of people affected right after the emergency, we were talking millions of people were affected uh, by that earthquake or the typhoon recently in the Philippines. And those first few days when you, any NGO, is trying to get services to large numbers of people, you know, we all have stockpiles and pre-provision supplies. But when you're talking about great numbers of people and the urgency of staffing up, it does take some days uh, to get everything to the people who need it the most as fast as possible. Certainly the Philippines taught us that due to some of the logistical issues of serving all the islands uh, in Typhoon Haiyan. You know, within four to five days, people were being served, but those first few days were very, very demanding for both the government and all of the NGO community. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess, you know, violence in Central America, particularly drug-related violence, is nothing – you know, that's particularly new. Uh, what do you think is, is accounting for this uh, sudden surge in migration uh, over the border, particularly as it seems that economic migration has been on a, a slow but steady decline to the U.S., but now you have these, you know, basically asylum seekers, right, that or maybe if they're not formally uh, asking for asylum, they're certainly uh, refugees fleeing violence. Like what, what's accounting for this, this sudden surge? I think it's a combination, and, and all I asked all you know I'm a fluent Spanish speaker. I spent many years in Latin America. I asked every one of them what that very same question, and they would say to me, and this was the case of uh, women from both El Salvador and Honduras, that in the last three to four years, the increase in violent activities, the increase in gang activities, the free reign of people involved in the drug trade had really increased to a point where they felt they could not protect their children in their communities. Uh, And they just said it's really increased. I said, you know, but, you know, just what you said, haven't these problems been there for a long time? And they said, yes, but in the past years ago or when they were growing up, some of the mothers who were, let's say, mid-30s said it wasn't as bad. It wasn't all in our area. And that... The challenges that police forces face, you know, not enough police, not always being available, that the gangs in some of the locations that these women came from, in a sense, ran ran the towns. And there was no, you know, there was no way that in their mind this was going to be turned around quickly. Now, Save the Children works in all of these countries. We work in Guatemala since the mid-'70s. We worked in Honduras since the early-'70s, El Salvador since 1980. So we have 30 to 50 years' experience in Mexico since 1960. So we do work in both rural and urban communities trying to improve the situation, but we also know from our staff security standpoint – that certainly the cities uh, are far more dangerous, whether it's Guatemala City, Tegucigalpa, or San Salvador, than they were when we first started our programs. I mean, I traveled and walked around Tegucigalpa uh, in the late 70s frequently. It was never, there weren't any security alerts, but now in all of these locations, there are very strict rules for staff, and even within, in Mexico itself, People, there are certain places you travel during the day, certain places you don't travel at all. So just the, what I would call the corridor of violence and drugs 
it's it's just a, a larger larger has a much larger presence throughout Central America and Mexico than it did before, and families are really feeling threatened and make this journey. And you know, we heard stories of people who have been raped, uh, people who had been separated from the people they were traveling with, uh, people who took advantage of them along the way. Uh, so people are risking a lot, and we also read stories. Uh, did not hear them of children who've died along the way trying to get in to other parts of the border that, you know, the people we all spoke with, again, who had crossed in this part of Mexico, they were generally picked up by border control authorities within 10 to 30 minutes of crossing the border. I guess they crossed the river, they were brought there, they either got there on their own or they were left there by the people who were taking them up there who were being paid to do that by their families. Uh, so earlier you mentioned that you really see no sign of this surge of migration uh, abating anytime soon. Uh, so what are uh, a humanitarian organizations like Save the Children's plans uh, for the U.S. border in, in sort of the, the near term? All right. In the near term, uh, we're going to continue our partnership with Catholic Charities. We have uh, what we call child-friendly spaces. And think of this as a safe play area. So when a mother comes in, she can safely leave her child. She can arrange for a visit. She can get legal advice. She can get a better understanding of where, you know, I had a lot of people ask me because they saw that I spoke Spanish, how far is it to Charlotte? Is Charlotte farther than Los Angeles? Because they, they had the name of the place, but they had no idea of the distance. So uh, the women are getting information on their journey. They might be making phone calls to the family members who are going to meet them. They're in contact with the bus station, uh, the bus company. Uh, so in the short term, we're obviously going to continue with our work. Uh, it's in Laredo. It's in Brownsville. It's in McAllen. We are hopeful we will get one of our staff members into one of the border control facilities where the unaccompanied minors are. And we'd like to offer our services in terms of child protection to the authorities because, you know, we have experience in this area. We have staff who are experienced child care workers. We also are getting a great partnership through Head Start because we work domestically. We work in 17 states in the U.S. Uh, we operate Head Start programs, and we work with other Head Start providers. So we have some of the volunteers uh, who we were able to locate from Texas who are providing these services. If we can get access to the border control facilities and help there, we would like to do that. And then we'll have to see, you know, what authorities decide are some of these unaccompanied minors going to be sent to places in the U.S. or will they go home? Will they be sent back to Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala? Uh, either way, we would like to be involved in this because we want to make sure whether the children are going home that they're safe along their journey, they get back to a family member, and they're not subject to any uh, the type of problems that people had on their way up. Because you just can't put kids on a bus uh, and expect them to get all the way back to Honduras or uh, Guatemala or El Salvador if they're traveling alone. So there'd be a lot of things where I think you know, say the children's worldwide experience. We've reunified kids in other countries. I know in my two years in Haiti, we worked on protection issues related to children going in and out of the Dominican Republic. We worked with, you know, the Haitian authorities to try to minimize the risks that children may experience if they're unaccompanied. 
Well, thank you for Gary. Thank you all for listening. Remember to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes so you do not miss an episode. I have some great episodes coming up that will be very timely and interesting, I promise, speaking with some great people. So uh, stay tuned for that, and we'll see you later. Bye.